I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about uh, my father-in-law, uh, well, yeah, father-in-law, and uh, we all have had people in our lives that have given us guidance, and as we continue through the book of Hebrews, we see that we've learned about the heroes of faith, we've learned about how to run with endurance, but as you know, running takes training, training takes discipline, and so we are talking about fatherly discipline today in Hebrews, and the title of the message is No Pain, No Gain. And with that said, I wanted to tell you about uh, my father-in-law just for a moment. And some of you may have heard this, but if not, uh, just humor me for a moment. Uh, Donna and I had the privilege of taking my father-in-law, which is Donna's stepfather, to Spartanburg during the South Carolina Baptist Convention to a meeting where all the pastors and messengers in the state come together and they, they come up with motions and they see everybody and they encourage everyone. Well... They had a recognition on Tuesday night of their convention for those ministers that have been in the ministry 50 years or more. And so they recognized them. And I've got a picture. Hopefully you can see it from where you're sitting. But that's my father-in-law right in the middle. And you probably recognize that guy behind him. That's Danny Gray. He was here for some time. And and several of those men I've, I've met through the years. But... Uh, It was just amazing to me to see all of those people being recognized for their service. And I saw many men there that I have looked up to at some point in my ministry. And uh, no one more than my father-in-law, Landrum Reese. And some have heard this story, but maybe you haven't. I'll make this short and sweet. My wife's father passed away when she was 13 years old. And for her mother, she had to be not only... Donna's mother and her sister's mother, but also their father figure as well. And she made sure that Donna and the family remained active in the ministry of their home church, which was Beaverdam Baptist Church over in Williamston. And while Donna and I were dating, that church really became a surrogate church for me. When I couldn't be at my home church in Spartanburg, I would go there. And and there was a lot of things at that time that reminded me of this church now where they would have socials and they would always make you feel welcome and that you would be able to to hear good biblical preaching and and I enjoyed hearing their preacher boldly preach the word of God every Sunday I was there there was conviction in his voice that matched equally with the compassion in his eyes and his love for people that preacher was Reverend Landrum Reese my father-in-law. How in the world did that happen? Well, he and his wife Doris played a crucial role in Donna and I's marriage. He not only did the premarital counseling, but uh, as we were, sometimes we would get nervous, sometimes we'd get overwhelmed. He would always bring us back to the Bible and what the Bible had to say. And I fully believe that Donna and I probably would not be buried today without his ministry and without his impact in our life. He was a, a great pastor for us. And so after that, at some point, only he knows the moment, he began to take an interest in a long widowed treasurer of the church because his wife Doris had passed and she had been passed for about a year or more. But he started to notice the treasurer in the church. The treasurer was my mother-in-law, Gladys Simpson. And they began to date and sometime later, Landrum Reese, the same pastor that married Donna and I, became my father-in-law. 
And over the years, I have gleaned so much encouragement and support, if nothing else, by listening to him tell me about the churches he was in, the people that he experienced, the situations that he navigated by depending upon God, his experiences, his successes, and also his trials. Because you see, in today's culture, the young, the sleek, and sporty preachers of today, they take the forefront of attention and the devotion that many have today. But, however, I have a deep respect for those men like that are pictured there that were in the homes of hospitals or in homes and in hospitals rather than their own. Their pain is our gain, and their experiences have brought us to where we are today for better or for worse. And so when some people see that picture, they might see a bunch of men that were were big during their day. I'm telling you what, churches were built and people like me were built on the backs of men like that. And although that there are, there are new styles and there are new things, and that's fine, but I'm just saying we do not need to discount those people that were in the trenches when we weren't even born. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that, that when I look at him and I hear his stories and when I think about those, those men that have gone before us, they had trials, they had tribulations, and they had to discipline themselves. For me, they are heroes of faith in my book. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. Am I perfect? Certainly not. But at the same time, we all have had the benefit of being under the leadership of someone. Well, when I think of his guidance in my life, I also think of my own father's guidance as well. He and my mother loved me enough to discipline me when I needed it. And as an only child, I am sure that was all too frequent. But every, just as every child needs discipline, just as every society needs order, just as every structure needs punishment and laws and rules, we see here today that the writer of Hebrews is saying that we need the discipline of a father. Now, when we get into this, I want to encourage you that when we say the word God's fatherly discipline, it's not just him putting us in time out and making us think about what we've done. It goes more than that. And so as you open your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. God's discipline is an expression of his love. In verses 3 through 6, it says this, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. And struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly, or faint when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. What I would like for you to do today is as you read this passage, and as you see this, this, this is not a, a warm, fuzzy type of passage, but it is the fact that if God loves us, 
he is going to discipline us. So that when you are undergoing this type of discipline, it's important to see the love behind it. For example, you probably all remember growing up, there was always one friend you had that always had the cool parents to let them do whatever they wanted. And some of you might have been that parent. I don't know. But you, you know that it always, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? And so you have those friends that they could stay out as late as they want. They didn't have to report in. They could do whatever they wanted to do. And everything would have been fine. But yet you, you got the luck of the draw. You got the parent that wanted to know where you were every second of the day. In order to make sure that you were in by 10 p.m. Even though all of your friends are having fun after 10 p.m., they wanted you in. And they gave you rules and they gave you structure. And you thought at the time, oh, this is driving me crazy. But what you see is that structure, that discipline, that training is what made you who you are today. And for those of you that have children of your own now, it was that discipline, it was that guidance that they gave you that you now are passing on to your children. And here's the sobering fact. The kind of parent you are today will be the kind of parent your child is in the future. There is a call for discipline. There is a need for discipline. And so what I want you to do is that as, as we look at this Old Testament Hall of Fame that we've been looking at for the past few weeks... I want to remind you, as the writer of Hebrews does, that although these men and women were fantastic role models, that they were not the pinnacle of the role model. They were not the hero. The hero was Jesus Christ himself. So I want you to fight the urge this morning. Well, what urge are you talking about, preacher? The urge I'm talking about is Satan does a good job of taking our concern for ourselves and turning it into a fear that either paralyzes us or it shackles us in our faith. It's almost that our problems become bigger than our God. And I know because of what the scripture says, and I know because of who God is, that is not possible. There is nothing bigger than God. But yet in our perception, in our minds, when we make what we're going through bigger than God, it can paralyze us. And if the devil can make you feel like you're alone and that no one understands you and that God doesn't love you, then you are right where the devil wants you. How do you get out of that funk? How, how do you keep your eyes on Jesus, as the scriptures say? How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Well, it says in verse 2, he says, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has, has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Folks, I want you to understand that Satan and also our selfish desires, they seek to make us look at everything that happens to us around us and think, how does this affect me right now? Our sinful self, our regard to make sure that we are protected, our regard to make sure that we are okay, the natural tendency to look out for number one, that is the very thing that squelches out the work of God in our lives. And Jesus reminds you, and he reminds me today, that what is happening to you today happened to him as well. That's the purpose of the first few 
verses of this chapter. And I want to tell you that you are not alone today. You are not alone. If you look at verse 3, he says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Folks, here's the thing. Christ's suffering is our suffering. We get the cross with the crown, folks. It is not peachy king. We have struggles. We have opportunities. We have mountaintops. We have valleys. But his struggles are our struggles. And also, on the flip side of that, our struggles are his struggles. Listen, I know what it's like to be sitting in a crowded pew uh, in a church just like this and be surrounded by all these people and still feel totally and utterly alone in your problems. That's where Satan wants you to be this morning. But you are not alone. His suffering is our suffering. And our suffering is his suffering. And he endured the cross so that you can today claim him as Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. Or as your forgiver and leader of your life. And, and, and good Christians today, we have no problem claiming Jesus as Savior. Woo, Lord, he saved me from my sin. I'm no longer going to hell. I'm not going to be a, a charcoal briquette. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get burned. I'm going to heaven. Amen. But when it comes to living for him day to day and making him the Lord, the leader, the controller of our lives, that's where we have a problem. We want the benefits, but we don't want the responsibility. One of our youth was telling me Wednesday night that uh, he had started wrestling for his school. And uh, this is not wrestling like you see on TV, but the real wrestling. And uh, I told him that he would be in the best shape of his life while wrestling. And I remember my own time wrestling of, of the, the countless practices and the sweat and the running the bleachers over and over again. And, and practicing moves to the point to where you, you can't, you're just exhausted. And, and you do all of that practicing for when you wrestle, you have three two-minute periods. You have a two-minute period, a break, a two-minute period, and a break. And it, when you finish, it is zapped all of your strength. But the thing is, is that he's young. And, and he's just starting out. So do you think you would take someone that's just starting out in wrestling, someone that is, what's, what's he in, eighth grade? Would you take an eighth grader and put him up against a senior in wrestling? Why? Because he hasn't had the training. He hasn't had the discipline. He hasn't been able to work up to that level. But to work up to that level takes training. And what motivates an athlete to train? Well, there's a desire, there's drive, but most importantly, what can make or break an athlete? Their coach. Their coach. A good coach that has experience to teach, the patience to lead, and the credibility to be there. Folks, I can think of no greater coach when it comes to spiritual lives, when it comes to our spiritual walk, than Jesus himself. And as he says in this passage, 
I've been there. I've done that. I've bought the t-shirt. There is nothing that you can go through that I haven't been through. And I'm not saying that so I can one-up you. I'm not saying that because I'm on an ego trip. But what he's saying is, I am here. I understand. I care. And I love you. And I want to show you how to navigate through this. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced because of our transgressions and crushed because of our iniquities. And punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. Just as Jesus Christ had to suffer, we have to sometimes suffer. And what we see is that suffering is God's gem of faith. If you are in God's gym today, if you are suffering, and it, it might not be something that you, des- you necessarily did something bad. You could have done everything good. But yet if God wants to test your faith, if there is something in your life that he is preparing you for that you do not see, you will have to work out. That's just like I was talking about our, our friend that's starting wrestling. He doesn't know he, who he's going to wrestle two years from now. But he's going to learn the moves. He's going to get in the gym. He's going to learn the sport. He's going to train. He's going to wrestle people that are better than him. To get him stronger. And to prepare him for what is ahead. But I want to tell you something. That in today it is expect persecution. When this was written, persecution was prevalent. But very few people had been killed for their faith. You'll see in that passage, the writer of Hebrews says, some of you have not yet died for your faith. And and though we we do have persecution in the world today, and in other countries, there are people that are literally dying for their faith. And there have even been some instances in America where that has happened. But for the larger extent, we don't see a whole lot of literal persecution of people losing their lives. But yet, he's writing to them, and he's writing to us, saying that that we do live in dark days, and and now there may be someone in here, in this room, listening right now, that one day will be called to die for their faith. It may be me. It may be you. It could be anybody. But God is preparing us for whatever they may be. Folks, let me just say it this way. If you are not meeting any resistance in your Christian walk, if you are not having to train in God's gym, so to speak, and your Christianity hasn't cost you a friend, a relationship, a habit, social status, you need to regard your walk and evaluate it. Because if we are friends of God, We are enemies of the world. And if you have no resistance in your walk with the Lord, please evaluate that walk. The second thing we see is God's discipline is specific and purposeful. I love this passage. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly. Or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. And here we go in verse 7. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, 
then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we even submit more to this father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained. Again, Christians, you belong to him. And we see in this passage that he calls us his sons. He calls us his children, his sons, his daughters. And with that, that is showing ownership. That's just like Tammy was sharing earlier that she's Meemaw to these children. She has got the right to be called that because that has been bestowed upon her. Understand, if you are a Christian today, you are a child of God. Do you understand the specialness of that? I mean, have, have we become so jaded and so callous that we, we hear that all the time to think that we are God's children? We belong to him. Think of somebody that you know today that you look up to and that you respect that's famous. What if you shared their last name and you were in their family? You would think, woohoo! Man, I'm going to have money. I'm going to have fame. I'm going to have prestige because I know him. He's in my family. But yet we come to church every Sunday. We are God's children. Amen. And that's about as excited as we get. Folks, we have access to heaven. We can hold the hand that created this world. We can hear the heart of the one that puts the beat in our heart. We are his children. And if you are a Christian, you are more than just a servant of God. You are his son or daughter. Have you ever thought this? Have you ever thought that person lives an evil lifestyle and it seems like they never have any problems? Yet I can't get away with anything. I used to feel that way as a kid. I was like, man, my friends get to go do all this stuff, but I can't catch a break. You ever thought about that? You, you see people that are not living for the Lord and it seems like they've got the money, they've got the wealth, they've got the cars, they've got the friends. They've got the clothes. They've got everything that you wish you had. And you think, they're not living for God. And here I am. I'm trying to live for God. And he's busting my chops every minute of the day. What's the difference between those two people? The difference is that person that seems like they have everything, they are illegitimate sons of God. They have no ownership. They have no right. They have no heaven. Everything that they accumulate on this earth will rust, break, fade away, or burn in the end. But those of us that are children of God will be with God again. God knows what we need. He says in verse 5, don't take the Lord's discipline lightly. I, I told you a few minutes ago that I want you to understand that fatherly discipline is not God giving us a spanking or, 
or sending us into time out, though sometimes we probably need that. But the term discipline that he's using here is it, it was a term that in the Greek culture, the boys in, in the Greek culture, they would have to train. And they would have to go to the gym because in Greek culture, sports was the, the, the optimal. It was what everybody worshipped. And so the boys had to work out in the gym until they got mature. And so that, that term of discipline means to work out until you reach maturity. What is the writer of Hebrews saying to us today? That in our Christian walk, it takes a little effort. No, it doesn't take a little effort. It takes a lot of effort. But God is good. And he is willing to give us the information and the opportunities we need. But the, the temptation, here's, Satan is really good about flipping things really fast. And so you're tracking along with the scripture and all of a sudden you say, well, God must not love me if he's sending me through all this stuff. I'll preach. I know we don't say that. I'm sure no one in here has thought, well, God, you must have it out for me with all the stuff I'm going through. Maybe you haven't felt that, but I have. Because we get on the, why me, Lord? Why is everything, everything I'm touching is just, just blowing up? The temptation is to say, well, God, you must not love me if you're treating me this way. I remember, unfortunately, when I was a teenager and my parents would discipline me, I thought I knew everything. And I would actually go to the point of being mad and tell them that I hated them or I hated what they were doing. As a youth pastor, I would have to give kids rules on trips. And they would just say, I hate you. Maybe you've been told that before by a child. It's no different than when we tell God, God, you must have it out for me. It's, it's natural to be mad. It's natural to be Upset, But I want you to see, if nothing else today, if God has put you in his gym and he is working on you, it is because he loves you. And he is preparing you for something greater. If you don't believe me, look at Jonah. I'm reminded of him. God disciplined him for his disobedience by throwing him overboard of a boat in a terrible storm. And that could have been it, folks. Jonah was out. God was done with him. He was moving on. No. God disciplined him by throwing him out of the boat to get his attention. But he also sent him a fish to save him. And so if you're going through struggles today, understand that with that struggle, you also have his protection. And understand that when God corrects you, it's not because he enjoys it. Although God's discipline may be painful at the time, it is centered in his love for you. And don't reject that. It says in Proverbs 15.32 that if you reject discipline, you only harm yourself. But if you listen to correction, you grow in understanding. What is the end result of godly discipline? What's the result of any discipline? Understanding? Behavioral changes? Protection? The reason we want to study this passage and the reason I need to preach this passage instead of just a fluff 
sermon on how good you are. The reason I have to teach this is because I'm telling you that it takes work to live as a Christian. And I'm here to tell you that it is so easy to get wrapped up in your own life and your own problems that you forget. It's not about you, but it's about what God wants to do in you and through you. You may not even have even done anything to deserve what you're going through. But God knew that you needed it. The reason discipline is important for us is because discipline brings spiritual maturity. Have you ever seen that child that's undisciplined? An undisciplined child has got a rough road ahead of them. Because they're going to have a tough time growing into a mature adult because no one has shown them how to be disciplined. And we can see that, we can picture that. Some of you are thinking of a kid right now, I know. But if you take that same analogy and you apply that to spiritual children, when you take people that accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and then do nothing with it, they are baby infants. They don't know how to grow into spiritually mature Christians. And when that happens, you have a, a basically churches become spiritual daycares. The reason so many churches fight and split and cause drama is because those involved are often undisciplined and immature believers because they have rejected God's discipline and they said they knew a better way. Finally, we see in our third point that power comes in focusing on the gains instead of the pains. As I showed you that picture earlier of those men of faith my father-in-law I think of everything I mean I am so glad that they were recognized for their achievement but behind the smiles behind the suits behind the accolades are miles and miles and miles of roads that those men traveled that were tough that refined them into who they are I'm going down the same road and so are you and although our roads at some point once or twice a week. Isn't it amazing how all of our roads diverge into this place we call church? And after we get out of church, they diverge again. But for some reason, for some moment, at this, at this time, God has you here to hear this point. It says in verse 12 and 13, that therefore strengthen your tired hands and weaken knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but what? Healed instead. Any of y'all ever broke a bone? Raise your hand if you broke a bone. Okay. Are you just going to let it hang there? Some of you are going, ow, no, no. No, you take it and you, you go to the doctor and you get it set. And if you're a girl, you get a pink cast. And if you're a guy, you get a camouflage one. I don't know, guys, if you want a pink cast, that's fine. And then you get all your friends to sign it. Sign the cast. And then by the time you find what what's the average time for a, a cast to be on? What? Six weeks. And what happens when you take that cast off? 
take that cast off of your arm or whatever body part it is, and you compare it to the other one. And this one, this brother looks like a wee little man, white, pale, like, like almost God forgot to give you an arm, so he threw one on there. Then you have this strong, mighty arm right here. What do you have to do? You have to take that arm. It hasn't been used. The muscles aren't used to working. And you have to take it and you have to build it up. You have to go through what we call therapy. Rehabilitation. Basically, you have to exercise that thing until it gets back in shape. Right? It hurts to do that. Therapy hurts. Working out hurts. It's not something that's pleasurable. I'm telling you, I can talk myself out of a workout faster than anybody in the world. But I can't complain if my muscles are not getting bigger or my waistline is not getting smaller if I'm not in the gym, right? No pain, no gain. If we sit there and we talk about, oh, my arm is so bad. I'm just going to sit here and dwell on this for a while. And it's God's fault that my arm's not healing. And why did I have to go break it in the first place? And we can come up with every excuse why our arm shouldn't be broken. But unless we work it out, it will not get stronger. The same is with our faith. We can blame God for our problems. We can blame ourselves for our problems. We can even blame other people for our problems. But our problems are our problems. And the way that we get stronger, the way that our spiritual life grows is by going into God's gym and submitting our lives to his fatherly, godly discipline. You know, you've seen those football games to where your favorite team is playing and, oh, the first half is just awful. They're missing plays and they're dropping they're dropping opportunities and whatever sport. I mean, you just then there's that halftime. What do you say? What does everybody say at halftime when your team's not doing good? Oh, that coach is going to give them some words at halftime. That coach needs to tell them something. And if I was a coach, I would tell them this. And then you go on. Oh, I've been in locker rooms and halftime speeches. And it's always get up, do what you know to do, and get back in the game. This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us in this passage. Get up. Get back in the game. And go back to doing what you know you should do. Because here's the thing. When do we receive God's strength? Everybody look at me. When do we receive God's strength? When we obey him. That's when we get God's strength, when we obey him. And finally, the gains from enduring godly discipline, what are they? You see in Galatians 5.22, you see the fruits of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there are no law. If you go into God's gym and submit to his discipline, these are the fruits. This is what your life bears. And also, as this passage says, it gives you a new path. It gives you a new direction. Listen, I've, I've painted myself in a corner before. Actually, literally, I was thinking about it. 
I have painted myself into a corner. You know, if you don't know what that means, basically it means you're painting like a floor or something like that, and you're painting and you're painting and you're painting, and all of a sudden you realize you painted in the wrong direction. And you're in a corner, and the only way you can get out is by stepping on what you just painted. Sometimes we mess ourselves up. Sometimes we get lost. Sometimes we get turned around. Sometimes we are stepping on the very things we're trying to do. But God can give you a new direction this morning. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Just trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your understanding. But in some of your ways acknowledge Him. And He will give you a better lease on life. Is that what it says? No. It says, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. I tell you what, anytime I go, I have a buddy that works down at, at, at Erskine. And there for a while, it seemed like there was always road work on that road. And you go down 85, there's always road work. And especially at night when they, you know, now they work at night so they have these huge lights that blind you when you drive by. And they have cones everywhere. And when you stop at one of these roads, there's this guy that you think's doing nothing. He's sitting there, propped up against a stop sign like this with a radio. He'll wait five minutes, flip it. Talk on the radio another five minutes later. Flip it. And it usually says stop and slow. Stop and slow. And you think, oh, that God, we paid him to do that? My tax money going for somebody to flip a sign and talk on the radio. Let me tell you something. If that guy wasn't there to give you the direction, what would happen? There would be a wreck. Somebody would get hurt. Because there is no path, there is no direction. By making God your sole source, by accepting his fatherly and loving discipline, his training, and applying his word, he will direct your paths. He'll, fill, he'll flip the sign for you. So he said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm in this situation. I don't know what I'm going to do. Trust the Lord in all your ways. But you don't know what that person did to me. Trust the Lord in all your ways. And he will direct your paths. As I opened the sermon today, as I said, I was amazed at the ministry of men that have gone before folks like myself. Their pain is our gain. They make it look really easy. But we know it's not. And if you are a Christian today, do not lose sight of the fact and the privilege and the promise that this passage says that you are a child of God. Like a coach, God is working in you, trying to make you better, not bitter. There is something he can see in you that you cannot, and you will only find out what that is if you yield your will to him. And then when you do that, your faithfulness will help somebody else. Oh, God, I pray that in my life someday, maybe some of my mess-ups would help somebody else. That when I'm getting put out to the pasture, so to speak, 
and being recognized for everything that was done and, and my end days seemed closer than my past days. There may be something that was done would benefit somebody else. And I pray you would do the same. And if there's someone here that does not know God, I want you to understand that your struggles are meant to draw you to him. Your struggles are meant to draw you to God, but you will only receive the gains that I talked about, the gains that the scriptures talked about, when you accept Him as your Savior and Lord, is when you become a child of God. If you are not a child of God, if you are not a Christian, you do not get the benefits, you do not get the guidance, and you do not get the hope that is found in this passage. God loves you too much to let you stay where you are today. Welcome his discipline. Hold on to his love and know that he is preparing you for tomorrow. No pain, no gain. Let's pray. God, thank you for your passage. Thank you that you loved us enough to call us your children. Thank you that you don't just save us and then wish us the best of luck for the rest of our lives. Lord, every decision, every moment, every high point, every low point, you care about. And when we struggle, you struggle right along with us. And everything that happens in our life, good or bad, is meant to make us more like you. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling today that they would find the hope in this passage. And I pray that if there's someone here that does not know you today, they would accept you as their Savior and Lord so they could receive the blessings of this passage. Maybe someone just needs to pray or join the church or even be baptized. Lord, this invitation time is for you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.